to the truth simply put the teaching broadcast vehicle of the basilea commission on today's teaching by alexander victor god's word rightly divided in the light of christ who is the central theme of the entire scriptures will come with simplicity precision clarity and power to instruct admonish edify and build you up into the full measure of the stature of christ now let's dive straight in so continue we stopped at faith is us being conscious of his faith right and then went on to round up and said one could say Christ is faith and that would be true but not entirely true because it will not be the whole truth it will be disputed because faith worked in you before you believed right and that cannot mean that Christ was in you before you believed it cannot it cannot mean that right John 1 11, he came to his own his own received him not. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right. Exousia. Right? Remember? Not power. Power is a wrong translation. The right, the authority to become sons of God to those who believe in his name. As many as received him, to them he gave power to become sons of God. As many as received him. So you're not a son until you have received. You don't have the authority to be a son until you have received. Your sins could have been forgiven, which they have been. Because he took away the sin of the whole world. It's not when an unbeliever becomes born again that his or her sins are forgiven. Yeah. I repeat, it's not when an unbeliever joins the kingdom of God that their sins were forgiven. Oh, Father, I come before you. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me. He's not a laundry man. Every day, all he's doing is washing. And then, he then comes and tells us in Hebrews 4 that he's at rest. He lied. God cannot be say he's at rest if every day, day in, day out, minute after minute, he's washing and writing names in one book or the other. Deleting this one, writing the book of life. You messed up the delete on the book of life, writing the book of death. Removing the book of death, writing the book of life. And he just keeps going like that, washing and cleansing, washing and cleansing. Each time you are saying, Father, I messed up, forgive me, wash me. Do you understand what you are saying? The father of lights, who is at rest, be washing you. There's nothing to do. He's, he wasn't powerful enough to wash you once. No, he wasn't. He washes you to the degree that you confess your sin. And you're constantly confessing. And constantly messing up. So you keep God in the laundry room. All he exists to do is just wash you and write and delete, write and delete. Just, you might as well just be there. The sins of the world were taken away once. Scripture cannot lie. Unfortunately for religious bigots, I believe it. He dealt with the sin problem once and for all. Once, once, once. The day an unbeliever gets born again, He's dragged back to the cross. 
That's all. It's the cross that applies it. Not a prayer. It's the cross that applies it. Not a believing on the part of the unbeliever becoming a believer. Your sin was forgiven at the cross. The message of reconciliation. Check 2 Corinthians 5. It's not come he will forgive you. Is God was in Christ. Verse 19. God was in Christ. Reconciling who? I know for some of you here it will seem strange. But let scriptures talk to you. Let the man speak for himself. God was in Christ. Remember those two words? In Christ, reconciling the world, not the church, not imputing their trespasses to them. Listen, I've said it in this house over and over. God has never come to the world looking for sin. Never. Not looking for sin to destroy. Destroy the sinner. Never. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? What was the negotiation? You'd have thought God would say, you know what? There are too many sinners. I'm going to destroy this place. Two million people. Lesbians, homosexuals, gays, transvestites, drunkards, lascivious people, gamblers, swindlers. I'm going to wipe them out. Mm -mm. He comes looking for righteousness. If I find 50, 50, 50 righteous, I won't destroy them. 45, 40, 35, 30, 25, 20, 10. Five. Oh, alas, there were four. A man, his wife, and two daughters. He came looking for righteousness. Found none. And when he saw that you were unrighteous, he began to reckon you righteous. And sent Jesus to pay for the sins of the world. So that nobody can say that your sin is estranging you from God. That's why it's good news to the unbeliever that says to you, you don't know how bad I've been. You don't know how many people I've killed. You don't know how many abortions I've had. You don't know how much I've doped. He paid for that too. Paid for that too. That's the far-reached extent of the blood of Jesus. What did John scream in John 1.29? The next day he lifted up his eyes from afar off and saw Jesus coming and screamed and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Who takes away the takes away? What did the world do for her sins to be taken away? I mean, guys didn't even know they were sinners. They didn't know they were sinners. That's why Jesus said on the cross, Forgive them, for they know not. They know not what they do. They didn't know they were sinners. They were chilling. And don't forget these people that didn't know they were sinners, most of them, if not all of them, knew God. Scripture doesn't ever say they didn't know God. Romans 1 says, although they knew him as God, they acknowledged him not or glorified him not as God. So their hearts were darkened. That's what it means to have a form of godliness and deny the power thereof. These were, it was religious guys that crucified Jesus. Not pagans. <laughs> not pagans. The pagans only drove the nails in his hand. It was, it was religious guys. People working for God. I killed Jesus. He died for the sins of the world. The world didn't even know they needed saving. That's why it takes faith. And that's why that faith has to come from God. Because a dead man cannot generate faith. You're dead. You who were dead in your trespasses. Hath he 
quickened. God commended his love towards us, Romans 5, 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Ungodly. For the ungodly. That's why Jesus died. So faith worked in you before you believed, helping you to believe. Yes? Because faith by hearing. Remember? Romans 10, 17, and hearing by the word of God. Okay? Now you notice I've gone through all of that. Before even doing a forensic exegesis of the word faith. Did anybody notice? I didn't even mind it. I just let scripture speak for itself. So you can see. Now today we will do a brief, very brief forensical exegesis of the New Testament Hebrew, uh, Greek word, faith. Which we all know in this house is pistis. From the root word, peitho, P-E-I-T-H-O. So the word there is pistis. Can take on different variables. It's an adjective, an adverb, you know, noun, pronoun, whatever. From the word peitho, and, and simply put, it means divine persuasion. Faith, simply put, is divine persuasion. Now, I will start to read to you what the actual meaning of pistis is. And then you can start to conclude for yourself as we round up this short study on whether what you have heard on faith is right or wrong. Because by the way a thing is defined, in the original language you will know if our explanations have been close to it or not. Divine persuasion. I'll read, okay? Verbatim. Faith is Strong's word, 4102 in the Strong's. Greek concordance and lexicon. 4102 is always a gift from God. I'm reading verbatim. You can go online and type Strong's 4102. Pistis will come up. If anybody does it, let me know. I like doing these things. Strong's, the way it's pronounced, 4102. Two. Just type that. It will come up in Google. Does anybody have it? You will see it there. If you type it, it comes up in Google. You hit the first search result. Have you seen it? You should see 4102 Pistis. Strong's Concordance. Original word, part of speech, transliteration, phonetic spelling, definition, help word studies. Is anybody seeing that? Second paragraph. Are you there? So, 4102 is always a gift from God and never something that can be produced by people. Are you seeing it? Yes, sir. So look up as I continue. As I'm reading, just be referencing it. I am not teaching you secrets. There are none. There are no secrets in the kingdom. These secret things have been revealed. What they say there as you can see for yourself, is that it is always a gift from God and never something that can be produced by people. I continue, if you're reading, in short. Are you there? Yes, sir. Is in short there? Yes. So reading the same thing. Great. Pistis, faith for the believer, is God's divine persuasion and therefore distinct from human belief 
distinct from confidence, yet involving it. I continue to read. Are you there? The Lord continuously births faith in the yielded believer so they can know what he prefers. That is, i.e., the persuasion of his will. Then they put there 1 John 5, 4. This is a victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. They put it there. Now, I brought this later on so that you can cross-reference what they have said faith is with what I have taught you so far. So as ridiculous as it sounds, what I've been teaching you, the meaning of faith had been there all along for centuries. These are dead guys. These are theologians of five, six, seven hundred years ago. At what point did we lose it? At what point did the church lose it? I'll continue. So they can know what he prefers. That is the persuasion of his will. 401 to Pistis, are we still there? In secular antiquity, right? Referred to a guarantee, warranty. In scripture, faith is God's warranty, certifying that the revelation he in birth will come to pass his way. We're not done. There's one more paragraph, right? Faith 4102 Pistis is also used collectively of all the times God has revealed, in parenthesis, giving the persuasion of his will, which includes the full revelation of scripture, as we see in Jude 3. Contend earnestly for the faith. I'm coming, I'm coming today. Indeed, God the Lord guarantees that all of this revelation will come to pass. End of quote. Now you can look at me and tell me how we're doing. So this is not esoteric knowledge. Knowledge I'm bringing from somewhere that I'm the only one that knows the source. Divine persuasion. Always a gift from God. Never something that can be produced by people. If a bunch of people walked the earth that understood God the way they did, we are returning it in this generation. We're returning it in this generation. Because it's not hidden. They always understood what faith meant. Divine persuasion, God's divine persuasion, distinct from human belief, distinct from your confidence. The Lord continuously births faith in the yielded believer. God is not always requiring faith of you. God is always giving faith to you. Gifting faith to you. By the transmission of his word, spearheaded by the agency of his spirit, his faith. His spirit, his word, his faith. It's his persuasion, not yours. And men start defining God by their persuasion of him. Ignoring his persuasion of himself and therefore his persuasion of them in himself. That's the faith cycle. Your acknowledgement, your consciousness of God's persuasion of himself and his persuasion of you in him. 
So outside of who you are in Christ, you are you are not. You're not, you're not, you're not. You shouldn't exist. You shouldn't walk the face of the earth. Outside your reckoning, your awareness, your consciousness, your acknowledgement of who you are in Christ, you are not. Because even God is not outside Christ. If God can in Christ, if God does in Christ, if God creates in Christ, if God moves in Christ, if God thinks in Christ, if God speaks, I listen to the word, the power of the believer. In Christ, that's God. Utterly powerless and without any potency. Outside Christ. Then you? It's his persuasion about himself and his persuasion of you in him or as he sees you in Christ. And unfortunately for the world, you see, God will never see you apart from in Christ. Cry all you want, grovel all you want, sow seeds all you want, fast all you want. God will never reckon with you outside of Christ because for God to do that will be for God to disregard his faith. The day God does that, he becomes faithless. The day God does that, your faith has taken over God. But you see, Paul tells Timothy that this faithful God cannot deny himself. So to the degree that his faith would be compromised, hear me carefully, he would deny you. It's not that he's not willing to do something for you. It's that you are trying to untwist him to do it as you believe he can. You understand? That's what your exercise of faith is doing. God, I believe! Do it! It doesn't matter whether it's your will. I believe. You are the talk and do, God. But you are the one talking what you're wanting him to do. You're the one who's talking what you want him to do. So to the degree that his faith, to the degree that he's answering you will make him faithless. Your faith will wait. And that's why we receive not. That's asking amiss. That's asking amiss. To the degree that he will become faithless, to show that you are faithful, you'll be faithless because he's faithful. <laughs> and then you will receive sense and enter his faith and be faithful. Then he's faithful. Because he will only be faithful to your faithfulness of his faith. He's faithful. The benefit of it, right, the manifestation of it, will only accrue to you to the degree that you trust his faith. Not to the degree that you exercise or generate yours. Because God is not about to be faithless on account of anybody. Has he said it? Will he not do it? Who is he that decrees a thing and it comes to pass except the Lord has said so? It's in Lamentation 3. 37. Thank you. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass? When the Lord has not commanded it. 
It's not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed. So speak all you want. If it renders God faithless, if it discolors his faith, he ain't doing it. Because he is faithful. <laughs> He's the one transmitting persuasion to you. He's not the one demanding persuasion of you. He's transmitting faith to you. It is his divine persuasion. A gift from God. Never something that can be produced by people. Why then would God, that the Christians serve, make a requirement of something you can do to release what he can do? One of the biggest frauds in church is how we have sold a so-called partnership between us and God to get something done. And you take your Bible and take it, show me from the light of Christ anywhere such a partnership is peddled in scripture. And don't open your mouth and tell me faith without works is dead. You have no idea what that text means. Faith without works has nothing to do with God. Nothing. Nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with salvation. Nothing. Was not Abraham justified by works when he gave up? And that's, then he, your head starts to go crazy. Until you understand that justification, justified as an English word or a Greek word, can take on meaning as defined by context. The same way faith, which you see tonight, takes on meaning as defined by context. So in the case of Abraham, was Abraham not justified by works? It's showing that. Do you not see that Abraham put his works where his faith was? By not just saying, yes, I've heard you, I will give Isaac, but didn't go ahead to give him. Did you not see that how we are seeing Abraham's faith is in what he did? Because faith does. Talking purely good works. Not doctrine, not salvation. Not God. The narrative doesn't include anything that has to do with us and God. Or believing for anything, including salvation. But it's consistent with the rest of scripture because we are God's workmanship, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus to do works which he preordained that we should work in them. Titus says in chapter 2 that we are a, a, a righteous people zealous for good works. So yes, it's part of. We work from salvation, not for salvation. From. That's what James is talking about. That is, if you check the language of James's letter, that's the argument. Somebody comes into you and then he says, I'm hungry. And then you say to him, be filled. Says, James says, what have you done? Do you understand? Elsewhere, he's talking about somebody enters your company because he's wealthily dressed. And you sit him in front and you put a beggar behind. So he's consistently dealing with the outflow, the lifestyle that accompanies faith. I'm not trying to protect your salvation or trying to get you to partner with God to get it. Constantly. That's the entire thing. Very practical letter. So you look at that in the light of Paul's letters. It makes sense. In spite of his own occasional struggle here and there. He and John. Because when John is saying this is how you know that you love God when you keep his commandment. What is God's commandment, John? See, we'll teach you. Because it's either John did not understand that the dispensations had changed at that point, 
or he couldn't mean the commandments to be the Mosaic law. It's one of these two. So we follow both strands of thought and see which one is consistent with the rest of scripture. That's how you study. Not get up and start arguing. If you love God, you will keep his commandment. Okay, we hear you, John. What are you referring to as commandment? Let's read the rest of your letters and see what you actually understand commandment to be. If it's the perfect law of liberty, great. If it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, great. If it's the law of sin and death, we have a problem. And to the point that we sufficiently establish that that's what you are referring to, that's where we will skip that verse and go to the next one. Because you, sir, John, didn't fully grasp until. Peter, until. Paul was a big nightmare. <laughs> are, you, are you understanding this? So faith is, simply put, divine persuasion. God's divine persuasion. Not in partnership with you. Because salvation is not in partnership with you. What did you do? You did nothing. You did nothing. You must partner with God. Because God can't sponsor himself. So for everything God will do, he needs partners. Media partners. Financial partners. Spiritual partners. Intercessory partners. Jesus, you, you understand? So when God does something, at the bottom of the fly of what God does, you see, probably sponsored by. <laughs> you know? God's partners. You saw the people that helped God contributed to make this happen. No, sir. He does it himself. Scripture says that all men might fear before him or be in reverent awe of him. Are you here? Do you understand this now? God's divine persuasion, God's conviction about himself. The gift of God that he transmits to the believer. So if we're being conscious of faith, we must also be conscious of the expressions of that faith. And we look at a few of them, we'll start with saving faith. Saving faith. Saving faith. Thank you, Father. Saving faith. I put here, saving faith is God's persuasion because we have established sufficiently that faith is God's divine persuasion. Right? So saving faith is God's persuasion about salvation. Does that make sense? God's persuasion about salvation. Advanced to the unbeliever at the point of hearing his word. God's persuasion about salvation advanced to the unbeliever at the point of hearing his word, priming him, you know that word? Priming him or her to receive forgiveness and justification, which are both acts of the grace of God. I'll say it again. Saving faith is God's persuasion about salvation, Advanced to the unbeliever at the point of hearing God's word. Thus priming him or her to receive forgiveness and justification, which are both acts of God. You get it? Remember, it is by grace you are saved. Through faith. 
Forgiveness is by the grace of God, right? It's an act of God's grace. Which itself is an act of God's love. We'll, we'll deal with that again in, when we come to love consciousness, pick up some more. Because God's forgiveness of sins and justification are acts of God's grace administered to us through faith. The acts of God's grace are sponsored or spearheaded by God's love, which is his nature. Which is his nature. <laughs> is this making sense to you? <laughs> so saving faith is God's persuasion about salvation transmitted to the or advanced to the unbeliever at the point of hearing God's word priming him or her to receive forgiveness and justification which are both acts of the grace of God in other words saving faith is how the grace of God applies the finished work of salvation to the unbeliever Saving faith is how the grace of God applies the finished work of salvation to the unbeliever. Faith is the instrument by which grace is applied. Make sense? Saving faith is how the grace of God applies the finished work of salvation to the unbeliever. It is God's advance party for Christ Jesus. Saving faith is God's advance party for Christ Jesus or for the receiving of Christ Jesus. Again, faith by hearing. Romans 10, 17. Hearing by the word of God. So faith is how grace works. Pretty much. Does that make sense? Grace is God's acts of salvation. Those acts of salvation are administered to you by faith. By God's persuasion about salvation. God thought of you a particular way. And then began to do something about it. Does that make sense? God falling in love with a sinner was his grace manifest. God beginning to now save the sinner that he's falling in love with is an act of his grace manifest. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Titus 2.11. Are you with me now? Yes, Pull everything you have heard. It's one message. Yes, it's one yes. message. You, you can't be lost. Because it's one message. Are you here now? Think understanding this gospel. Think he swapped it. Think it's one message. Think the Christ conscious believer. It's one message. So the grace of God has appeared to all men. Teaching them. Right? When the kindness is the same word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 3.5. Our Lord and Savior just appeared. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But of his own mercy he saved us. That's God's grace. Salvation is an act of God's grace. Does that make sense? Salvation is God's grace extended to us. How we receive it is by the imputation of God's persuasion about salvation. Does that make sense? It, that is the only time. That's the only time that God showed you you were a sinner. He's not in the business of showing sin. But once. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will convict the world of sin. The world. Not the church. Not the church. He will convict the world of sin so that they can be saved. 
So if you are born again and you keep hearing you are a sinner, it's a stranger's voice you are hearing. You only hear it once when it highlights your need to be saved. Are you hearing me? And even that, when you hear it that you are a sinner, it is not presenting a problem without the solution. So even that is not cause for alarm. So any evangelism that troubles or discomfits the hearer is not good news. Evangelion. Good news that does not have a bad side. It's not two sides of a coin. So any evangelism that makes me feel, hey, I'm lost. No, that's why I came. You are not lost. He came to seek and save the lost. That's why I said to you over and over, Jesus is not running after you, not you. He's not coming after you. No, you are, in, you are saved. You are inside. You now, as you are, you are the 99. What's wrong with you? You don't want to grow up. You don't want to grow up. That's why you keep seeing yourself as the one that he's living the 99. So if all of us are, his, are coming out of the pen and going out and he keeps coming after us, then who really has he saved? That he has been chasing and chasing. Who has he found? Very sloppy shepherd. Very sloppy shepherd. As he's catching one, the other 99 have left the pen. Now I'm going to look for them again and bring them. No, are you, if you are saved, you are in the 99. He went after you once. Climbed mountains. Broke down walls. Overcame lies to save you. Now you are saved. Now you are him going after the lost. So no, for me, it's my praise report. That's my story. Happened once. He's always coming after. He said, do you know you're a sinner? Do you know you need saving? You are lost again. How? Then he's a bad shepherd. Can't stand and say, I am the good shepherd. He's lying. It's lying. So no, contrary to what religion teaches you, he's not constantly coming to remind you of your sin. Yeah. He came to take away the sin of the world. But at the time of receiving saving faith, what it wakes up in you is your inadequacy without him. And as you are seeing your inadequacy without him, you are seeing the supply for your inadequacy. Grace is how we are saved. Faith is how it is applied. Because it's God's conviction, God's persuasion about salvation. I want to save you. And because I want to save you, I did this. Now, I've done it. You need to know what I've done. And in knowing what I've done, you have to also see how you needed it to be done. So it highlights your sin only that you might receive salvation. Not that you might be condemned. Who is he? That condemns. Romans 8.33 It is the Lord that justifies. So what is God in the business of? Justifying. Justification. Who is he that condemns? Who is he that brings a charge against God's elect? And God's elect here, not the chosen ones. The ones that were lined up for salvation. Remember we talked about election. And predestination. We take on election. You take on predestination, showing how it's not a particular bunch of people that are destined to be saved, but that the predestined are the ones that heaven knows 
will receive the message. Powerful stuff. Hallelujah. So faith is how grace works. Do we get it now? Are you sure? It's God's persuasion that causes grace to have done the work for saving mankind. It is coming or it comes into those who have faith in them to activate it, to receive it. Make sense? Okay? Do you understand that? So we're justified by faith, saving faith. That's the expression. We're justified by saving faith. Okay? Romans 5.1, right? Therefore, having been justified by faith. Romans 5 and 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and 19. That is, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Galatians 2.16. Are you glad you're here? Yes, sir. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. A man is not justified by the works of the law. That's why in chapter 4, Paul then asks, what purpose then does the law serve? Things where we're caught up in blind arguments without understanding that those arguments have been argued already and answered. Yes, sir. <laughs> it's foolishness. It's foolishness. What purpose then does the law serve? The person that introduced what appears to be a conundrum is the one that addressed it and answered it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Pay attention to him. Yes, no argument today is new. Yes, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. And then for double emphasis, for by the works of the law. So what are you doing there? When the end thereof is not justification. No flesh, no flesh, no flesh, no single flesh. No flesh. Moses knew it. Collected law. Gave them law. Left them there and found grace. <laughs> by faith, Moses. <laughs> Left them in the law. Can you imagine? Intermediary that was not practicing what he preached. <laughs> Bad example. That's the worst example of obeying the law. The giver of the law himself. Me, I've seen something. I've seen one small glory. You guys can be here fighting with different kinds of fabric. <laughs> I've seen a glory. Show me your glory. Leave this thing. Why was he asking for glory? Asking for presence after having received the law. Because he knew there was more. <laughs> no one is justified by the works of the law. We are only justified how? How? By faith. What faith? Saving faith. Or what expression of faith? Not faith in a vacuum. Faith expressed in Jesus. It's not just faith. Remember Pistis says, not your confidence not your confidence. Faith in Jesus. Faith expressed in Jesus is what justifies. Acts 15 and 9. Pick the thought for me. I need verse 9, but just pick the thought for me. Pick the statement for me where it begins. Thank you. So God, who knows the heart, 
acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, that is Jew and Gentile, purifying or sanctifying their hearts. How? So a believer, oh man, does not pray, create in me a clean heart. Because therefore, having been justified by faith, your heart is clean. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, Hebrews says. He purified their hearts by faith. It's all his working. Acts 59. Purifying their hearts by faith. Stay here. Tippity. For when they believe, he makes the hearts pure. The message. Cleaning up their lives as they trusted and believed him. Is his working. Purifying the hearts by faith. His faith, remember? Acts 26, 18. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Sanctified. Sanctified, hagios, made saints. How? By faith in God. Correctly rendered, sanctified by the faith of me. Mm-hmm. Romans 3.22. I told you that your conviction about God doesn't mean he is that. It's his conviction of himself that you are conscious of. Romans 3.22. Even the righteousness of God through Faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through faith. Are you here? Romans 5.1, we've seen that already. 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now because we are saved by grace through faith, Because of that faith, we have hope. Because God has shown us his overview of himself. That gives us hope. The overview of God shows us who we are in him. That gives us hope. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. So he's known as the firstborn from the dead. That gives us hope. Like I said on Sunday, as with Jesus, so with us. Make sense? He's the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn to enter immortality. Scripture cannot lie. So when you see Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, Luke 11, I believe, Mount of Transfiguration, and you see Moses and Elijah, it was not them. It's visions. It's visions. Because to see that to say it was them in the person is to say that Moses and Elijah are in glorified bodies. And also implies they entered glorification before Jesus. That's an insult on the entire resurrection of Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. And then it will give us a major theological problem. The only problem you have is the one you create for yourself. Because you look at one scripture in isolation, you will come into error. How will you reconcile that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead? The first one to enter immortality. And then there's Moses 
and Elijah showing up in spirit form glorified on the mountain before Jesus has entered immortality. At, at best, Jesus should be the third born. That's why when the trance finished and lifted, the disciples came back to themselves. Jesus said, I, what are you doing? Let's go now. Let's go down. It was a vision. That's why he lifted. It was the same way Peter saw a sheet in Acts 9, 10. Sheets with animals. It was a vision. It was a vision. Because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus. Jesus. He's the first. Jesus. The first and the last. Jesus. Again, he did in the revelation. He defines himself as the first and the last. It wasn't John describing him. It was he saying, I am the first and the last. Or else our, our hope for immortality will not be premised on the resurrection of Jesus. We should be looking at Moses or Elijah. Elijah went up in a wild wind in a chariot. Hebrews 11 said he died. He should have said this all died excluding Elijah who went up in a chariot. Then I will show you in scripture where Elijah showed up and gave a prophecy to a king a few years later. And you will answer for yourself if Elijah went up in a chariot to heaven or in a transition of prophetic office. There's not so much nonsense we are teaching in church. Because, you see, there will be a problem if Elijah went up in the chariot to heaven means he didn't taste death. There will be a problem if Enoch walking with God without dying meant he entered eternity and tasted immortality. Then Jesus is a waste of time and space. Waste of time and space. There's nothing you can, and this is why make a mockery of Christianity. Because you don't have a grasp on the word of God. You're confused and all over the place. So let's look at scripture holistically, not in isolation. Enoch walked with God and was not for God to him. What does that mean? Don't conclude that he entered eternity without dying. Don't do that. Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture doesn't say that. Doesn't. Then Hebrews calls him among the heroes of faith and says these all died. Not having obtained the promise. But if Enoch walked with God and was not, but God took him, then he entered the promise. Before Abraham. Before Abraham, Enoch should be the father of faith. Because men even began to call on the name of the Lord in his time. He should be the father of faith. He should have been one sent to die for our sins. He comes and goes and he's not. And Abraham comes. A Canaanite. A Gentile. In case you don't realize that the first Hebrew was a Gentile. <laughs> Just in case you don't realize. The first Hebrew. The first Hebrew. The first Hebrew was a Gentile pagan. The same Canaanites that God told them. To make sure you chase them out of the land. <laughs> it's a Gentile. from Haran. Heathen nation, heathen people that was picked out. Why not Enoch, who was a direct descendant of, of, of Adam and worked with God so powerfully that he just 
died. They just went into eternity without dying. And then scripture then comes and says, they died in faith. Then let's look for them. Find out what happened to them. Because it's either the person that said they are dying in faith is lying. Or the person that is here saying that they didn't see death is lying. Or this is not what it means. That's how you, that's how you investigate scripture. You cannot be emotional about it. It's not your scripture. <laughs> not your scripture. Let the man speak for himself. You keep holding the Bible like you are the one that wrote it. As if it's your integrity that is at stake. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> as if it's your integrity that is at stake. No, let the scripture speak for himself. So either this one is lying, this one is lying, or one of them doesn't mean what they're saying. That's why I've told you that God's word is inerrant. It's without error. God's word is inerrant. If there's an error in understanding God's word, it is not from the source. It is from the interpreter. (laughs) It's from the interpreter. It's always an error of interpretation. Always an error of translation. Always an error of comprehension. Because if Moses and Elijah are in heaven and they are showing up and appearing and disappearing, then Jesus has no right to claim he's the firstborn from the dead. We haven't entered the day of the Lord and Moses is coming and going as he likes. Elijah is appearing and disappearing without body. What Jesus himself had not yet tasted. Oh, but him, but him. They said that, that Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. First of all, is Abraham God? So when a righteous man dies, he's not even going to the throne of God. He's going to the bosom of Abraham. I'm not going. I'm not going. Secondly, it was an allegory. It was a parable. It was a story. Why did Jesus pick Abraham? Because every Jew understood the concept of Abraham being their father in the faith. So he took that picture to get their attention because Abraham was the largest spiritual authority to the Jew. So he borrows that pictorially because he understood pictures. So, so he died and he went to the bosom of Abraham. Doesn't mean that when you die, you are going to the bosom of Abraham. When Abraham is the bosom of the Lord. Is he around that died for your sins? Because the people that argue for pre-Christ immortality bring and say, well, Lazarus was at the bosom of Abraham. Is Abraham God? Even if it was real. Two, when it becomes that Abraham, when we get to heaven, is Abraham we're looking to become like? Come on, guys. Come on. So no, don't be so about scripture. Let it interpret himself. Don't be in a, don't be in a hurry. They died in faith. So we throw through the scriptures, you find the trajectory of what happened. But you see, we have, for, for centuries, we have stopped searching because somebody said. And the people that will pick your Bible and in six hours will read it page to page and floor you in a conversation. Destroy your faith in an argument. Pick out all the flaws in your doctrine. Because it doesn't make sense even to you. You can't articulate it. You can't tie the ends together. You can't systematically divide the word of truth. And you're in church wasting time serving in a department. That's why you avoid conversations. Yes. Tell you, go out to, to preach the gospel. You're afraid because you know you don't know it. 
And when they start to say, well, everybody should hold his own truth. No, nobody has truth. Nobody has truth. Hold on to your own truth. We can't be saying two different things and then both of them are true. <laughs> Either both of them are a lie or one of them is true. Don't hold on to your own truth. It's working for you. <laughs> it's working for you. One of the lamest things again in religion is working for you. Moses threw his rod, Aaron's rod, before Pharaoh. It became a serpent. Pharaoh's magicians threw their rods. And there were at least 40 of them. And all their rods became serpents. What nonsense are you saying about his working for you? Every single plague that Moses and Aaron brought upon Egypt. <laughs> it's so, so stupid. Pharaoh's sorcerers brought also upon Egypt. They could not take anything away. They just kept replicating what Moses and Aaron were doing. Until the death of the firstborn. So what are you telling me about his walking? Simon Bajona, Elimas, terrorized an entire city with witchcraft. It was working. A girl, slave girl with a familiar spirit went around following the disciples for three days declaring that Jesus is Lord by a familiar spirit and it was working. Don't tell me, don't tell me it's working for me. You're not serious with your faith. You're not serious with your faith. Tell me it's working. That's not the litmus test for accuracy of scripture. The word of God rightly divided it is. <laughs> Are you here? Yes, so that's how we have hope. Because Jesus is the first one from the dead. If our hope is based on Moses, then we have a problem. Why are we then told that we are not being justified by keeping the law? If the proponent of the law has entered immortality. Let's, let's have these difficult conversations. Do you understand what I'm saying of you? If the person that brought the law that you are disparaging now because you're saying it's obsolete, has tasted immortality by the law or from the law, then why are you telling me I cannot be justified by keeping the law of somebody who has by the law entered immortality? Let's talk into, we're not stupid though. Yeah? We're not, when we go born again, we didn't trade our brains at the altar, of, altar call. Let's have intelligent conversations. If Elijah is already the litmus test, or Elijah is the standard for immortality, why would Jesus then reprimand his disciples in Luke 9 for wanting to do what Elijah did? Should we call on fire from heaven and destroy these people just as Elijah did? Jesus says, he rebuked them and says, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. In other words, the spirit you're of is not the spirit of Elijah. It's not the spirit of Elijah. But our hope, 1 Corinthians 15, deals with that. If Christ did not rise, ah, then you are dead in your sins and your faith is in vain. So he's the hope we have for eternal life. The fact that Jesus has entered immortality. Jesus alone. What did I say? Jesus alone. Jesus is the only human that has transitioned into immortality. Quote me anywhere. Go back and read your Bible. All the emotional mushiness of our loved ones who are dead is just that emotional. 
There's some comfort and some succor that comes from you concluding that your loved one is in the bosom of the Lord. They sleep. That's what scripture says. They sleep. Now concerning those who sleep in the Lord. The dead in Christ shall rise. For if they are in heaven, where are they rising from? Where are they rising from? Heaven? That's poor logistics. Vope, take off from heaven. Because to fly up, when you're already up, you have to fly down first. Enter the body. And now go up again. We'll now follow you. It's poor logistics. Now concerning those who sleep. Sleep. And the Lord. Those who sleep. Whether we are awake or we are asleep, we will be with the Lord. The dead in Christ are sleeping. They are asleep. And that's, that's why there will be a quickening. Yeah, in the spirit of he who raised up Christ from the dead dwells in you. He who raised up Christ from the dead will quicken your mortal body. The same way he quickened the mortal body of Jesus. In the spirit of he who raised up Christ from the dead dwells in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead will quicken. The word there is zopoio. Give life to your mortal body when you are dead. The same way he gave life to the mortal body of Jesus to resurrect is the same way on the day of the Lord the dead in Christ will be given life as by the spirit of the Lord. That's why you have that deposit in you, that auxiliary battery in you. Are you understanding it? So our hope of eternal life, our hope of glorification, our hope for immortality is as exemplified in Jesus alone. But right now, it's not a glory he's sharing with anybody. Us and Moses shall be glorified together. Apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Apart from us, apart from us, apart from us, apart from us. Us and Elijah are entering together. Us and Enoch are entering together. We are going to be glorified together. As with Jesus, so with us. Together. How can they who lived in the shadow have already entered the reality and then us who are in the reality are stuck in the hope? They lived in the shadows, right? Types and shadows. And then we are implying that they've entered the reality when they didn't even live in the reality, the substance that we have because the substance is Christ. They did not have Christ. Somehow, without having Christ, they jumped steps and entered immortality. We now who are here in Christ have not entered what they who did not have Christ have entered. There's a fundamental problem. So why are we wasting our time? Denounce Christ, embrace the law, types and shadows, enter immortality. Simple. Simple. And no, I'm not teaching immortality today. (laughs) Just trying to explain that faith in you is a hope of what is to come. There'll be a problem. And this is why, do you understand what I'm saying? See, you see why it's important to be rightly taught the word of truth. So you'll not be tossed around, Hebrews 4, by every wind of doctrine. You can articulate yourself in the things of the spirit. You can. It's not impossible to grasp the word of God. It's not. It is the remit of every believer. Every believer ought to have grounding in God's word. Every believer. So we teach presenting every man perfect in Christ. That's what Paul says in Colossians. 
Presenting every man perfect, not some men. Not the men that went to Bible school. Every man perfect in Christ. That's how we teach. Faith is how we have hope. And as with Jesus, so shall it be with us. All of us enter together. So we now sit down on the basis of that and understand scripture. You see somebody died and went to heaven. What do you mean? That's why I have over the years and so far I've been proven right on all occasions. I've never taken anybody seriously who said they died and went to heaven. Saw heaven, saw hell, came back. You had serious high fever. You know the one where you look at your ceiling and you're just seeing things? I mean, I've had had that. You are on your your bed. Serious malaria and typhoid. You travel, you see cars, you see spaceships, you see big animals with long horns. Serious hallucinations. You see dinosaurs coming out of your wall. Yeah. You see Tyrosaurus Rex, you see coming out. You see all those big big rhinoceros huge animals mammoths walking calling serious full animation 3d i saw the lord the lord took me captured me up and you can talk because the one time it happened in scripture paul couldn't talk the lord now said i should go back I'm going to warn them. You cannot come and say to me that you died and went to heaven. Saw heaven, saw hell. God now said, go back and go and warn my people. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Stay with me, stay with me. But Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus at the bosom of Abraham. And he says, the rich man says to Abraham, please send Lazarus back to go and warn my five brothers. And Abraham said, as a type of God. That nobody is a chasm between you and us and us and you. Nobody goes from you to us. Nobody goes from us to you. So the, then Abraham says, if they, will, if they hear the prophets and obey the prophets, then your faith will not befall them. Jesus told that story that Abraham said, a type of God, no chasm, there's a chasm, you can't go from here to here. Jesus says, nobody can go from the dead. And Jesus actually says, that Abraham actually says, even if somebody went from the dead to you, you will not believe. But all of a sudden in the 21st century, Jesus has changed his mind and has loaded a different OS that enables death to life travel. And forgot to update the scriptures to highlight it. Because if God's nature and premises and principles have changed, they should have updated the scripture to highlight it. So when did God now decide it's suddenly okay to do intercelestial travel? All of a sudden God has decided, you know what, yeah, okay. I didn't, I didn't quite understand then. Dead people, I didn't think dead people can have as much impact. You know, but now I've realized. Now I've realized that dead people are, are a powerful tool for spreading the gospel of fear. So let's send a few people back from the dead. No, sir. Saving faith is how we have hope. Saving faith is how we have hope. As with Jesus, so with us. His persuasion. First Corinthians 15, 17. Are you getting this? If Christ is not risen, Christ. 
your faith is futile, <laughs> you are still in your sins. So it's, it, it, it's all hinged on the resurrection of Christ. Of Christ. These all died. Lazarus was raised to death, to life in John 11. He died again. <laughs> in fact, as he was resurrected, they were looking for him to kill him. John 11, same chapter, into chapter 12. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> they knew that he, why were they looking for him to kill him? Because he resurrected as flesh and blood. He didn't resurrect in a different quality than how he died. So he didn't enter immortality. <laughs> Hallelujah. Okay, so we understand saving faith? Number two, living faith. Or the faith life. Living faith, faith life. This is how the believer lives in the earth Conscious of God's persuasion and will concerning him or her. Living faith or the faith life is how the believer lives in the earth. Conscious of God's persuasion and will concerning him or her. You get that? This is how the believer lives in the earth. Conscious of God's persuasion and will Concerning him or her. The faith life or leaving faith as an expression of the faith of God is the consciousness of a believer of God's will for me in the earth now. How God has earmarked for me to live. Do you understand that? Yes, sir. How God has earmarked for me to live in the earth. That's living faith. I'm saved by faith, saving faith. Saving faith brings me into living faith. Come on, stay with me. Do you get it? Saving faith brings me into living faith. So as I'm born again, I am not, as it were, depending on saving faith. Because saving faith was a quickening to cause me to realize what he had done and its importance in my life so I can receive it when i receive it i go beyond the realm of saving faith because i'm saved and i enter the realm of living faith or the faith life and that is a consciousness and awareness of how god intends for me to live as a son of god in the earth now does that make sense living faith is what paul captures in galatians 2 20 I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, this life now, in the earth now, this mortal life now, I live by the faith of the Son of God, King James. The faith of the Son of God. Who loved me? The life I now live, now, now. We're not talking eternal life. Yeah. We're talking now, mortal life. Yes. In the flesh, it's clear. Yes. In the flesh. <laughs> Do you understand? 
Saving faith brought me into what kind of life? Living faith. Uh, no. I'll ask the question again. I didn't say saving faith brought me into what kind of faith. I said saving faith brought me into what kind of life? John 3.16. Let scripture speak for itself. Whoever believes in him should have what? Everlasting life. Saving faith comes to you for what? Believing. Believing brings you and gives you what? Eternal life or everlasting life. I am come, John 10.10, that they might have life and have life in abundance or life that does not run out, a.k.a. everlasting life. So when you are saved, what did you receive? That's why you will die in the flesh. Because what you receive is everlasting life. Not immunity from this life. What you have received at, 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 at the point of salvation is that at the end of the ages, you are guaranteed eternal security. It doesn't preclude you from the basbos in this life. That's why Jesus said, in this world, <laughs> not you may have, auntie, you will have. So what have you received as a hope? Eternal life, everlasting life. But you see, between salvation and everlasting life, um, there's something called this life. <laughs> and the problem is always this life. No, eternal is sorted. That eternal life came to us. That one. We received that eternal life. Do you understand? You know that one? Are you sure you know that one? <laughs> Actually, I don't know the one you have. The one I have is that one. And the one I have in John 10, 28, 29. Put it up. John 10, 28, 29 into 30. Let me tell you that one, that one, that one. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Jesus couldn't be more emphatic than this. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I always like to remind you, anyone includes you. You are a one. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. 29, it gets even juicier in 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. You are in the hand of the son. You are in the hand of the father. That is the eternal life you have. That's the eternal life you have. That's the eternal life you have. Anybody can bang their head against the wall till tomorrow. The kind of life I have is eternal. I cannot lose it. I don't understand what you're talking about. No one can take them out. What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall death, peril, persecution, famine, sword? I am convinced neither death nor life. This life, this life. When he said, when he said neither death nor life, he's talking about this life. 
principalities, things, present things to come, heights, depths can separate us from the love of God, which is domiciled where? In Christ Jesus. I'm sorry, but I'm not the kind of person you can preach to that my eternal security might be in jeopardy. There's too much assurance from scripture. Too much. Too much assurance from scripture that the quality of life I have received, if indeed I have received it, is that eternal life. See, not eternal life, or that eternal life. That one, la melikosi vija, elika sevrindu koli, elikosi valinde kozeda, eleze prukatila brande kosi, jekila brando kosi deblida hadehida, zevede kindu sijida, la frode kise ligo duza balaha. That one. That one. That one. That one. Forgive me. I get animated when we start talking eternal security. I go against it like a bull in a china shop. There's nothing you can tell a believer in Christ Jesus to convince him that what he has can be lost. That eternal life. That's what we have received. That life. The, the only thing we are grappling with is this one. This, this human life is too fickle, too mundane, too minute, too finite to be what influences that eternal life. No, sir. Receive light. Receive light. So the issue, the issue is, is here, this one. In this life, can I shock you? Jesus had to learn obedience. Yes, In this life. The eternal one, the ancient of days, trapped in a human body, had to learn it our way. And so it can be said that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He had to go through his human experience because it was as a perfect man that he had to die. Not as a perfect God. It's as a perfect man that he had to die to get into immortality. When you die in this flesh, how will you die? Sorry? When you die in this flesh, how will you die? Why are you afraid to say it? Because only perfect men can enter immortality. So to qualify you for eternity, what did Jesus come and give you? Hebrews 10, 14. Perfection. So now you qualify to die and enter eternity. As with Jesus, so with us. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are beings. So guess what? My sanctification now is not for perfection. Is from perfection. Because I'm perfect, oh. All this human, this human life now. This whole life now is just about removing the quirks. Not that the quirks jeopardize what I have already been qualified for. 
been qualified for. That eternal life. That one. That one. That one. That one. That one. I'm not going to dump my car that I just got because the AC is not working. We're going to fix the AC. It's taking three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. We are going to fix that AC. We got the car because we like it. Not because the car has AC. It's not AC we bought, it's car. Oh, I want to buy an ML350 because I like the way the AC cools. No, it's not AC I bought. I bought a car. In whom I'm well pleased. But there's a couple of quirks. I'm not going to destroy the car because the AC is not working. What have you received? Everlasting life, eternal life. You have received perfection. But this, but AC is not working somewhere in your life. Not in your eternal life. In this life. Something's off somewhere. As you transition, we're going to fix it. You're struggling with malice every now and then. You're struggling with bitterness. We're going to deal with it. You're struggling with an addiction, you're struck in a vice, you know, masturbation or what. We're going to deal with it. But you are perfected. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what scriptures teach. So it's this life that's the problem. Now for mastery over this life, it is injected to you all through your journey, living faith. Faith to live by yes. in this life. Yes, <laughs> it is in it is for this life. Faith to live by. How God intends for me to gain mastery over the works of the flesh in this life. Tell your neighbor, is this life we're talking about? In this life. So when we look at from this lens, you look at Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet the life I now live in the flesh. Let's, let's see the TPT. Are you getting this? TPT. My old identity has been co-crucified with Messiah and no longer lives. For the nails of his cross crucified me with him. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine. For the anointed one lives his life through me. The message. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith is God's enablement, living faith, for you to live in this life. So, so for the believer, faith is being conscious of his faith. That's why the just lives by faith. Living faith. Habakkuk 2.4 
Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Romans 1.17 For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11 That no one is justified. (laughs) 3.11 3.11 Just showing you repetitions of the same scripture. 3.11 That no one is justified by law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38 Hebrews 10.38 Now the just shall live by faith. I explained this yesterday. My soul has no pleasure in him. So faith for God or from God's point of view is his persuasion and conviction which imputed to us makes us trust him. Faith for God is his persuasion, right? We saw that from Pistis Paitho his persuasion and conviction which Imputed to us makes us trust him. Because once we see life, eternity from the lens of God, we come into rest, right? And rest is essentially trusting him, like Monica said, letting him do his thing. Not us being negligent, but us being conscious. There's a difference. Because you don't want to go, ah, okay, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know, it's the faith of God, you suffer. It's not knowledge of it that works. It's consciousness. It's you being conscious. That I will do nothing except what God is persuaded about. I will go nowhere except where God is persuaded about. I will say nothing except what God is persuaded about. So vain speech disappears from your vocabulary. When Colossians says, let no vain speech proceed from your mouth. Only that which is graced edifying the hearer. That's God's persuasion for when you talk. Otherwise, zip it. Let this mind be in you. Philippians 2.5, which was also in Christ Jesus. If it's not that mind, don't think. Philippians 4.8. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's any praise, Think on these things. Conversely, whatever things are not true, not just, not pure, not trustworthy, do not think on these things. So again, God's conviction for your thinking is clear. It's clear. You don't need a psychologist to program your head. He already told you what his conviction for your thinking is if you would just obey. Simple. That's the faith life. Does that make sense? Living your life in the flesh by the faith of the Son of God. Simple. He slept in a storm. Sleep. Let the heathen rage. Are you following me now? He prayed. Whenever he prayed, he gave thanks. Pray, give thanks. You're struggling with your will, but you know what his will is? Tell him. And hands off. That's what Jesus did. What does it? This all call you into imitate. That is a faith life. Look at what he did. Look at what they did and do it. That is you practicing living faith or the faith life. Drawing from God how God wants you to live. Do you get it? So for the believer, living faith is actually trust. It's just trusting God. It's just trusting God. 
In other words, I wrote here, to be faith conscious is to trust God at all times, in all things, and in all ways. To be faith conscious for a believer is to trust God at all times, in all things, and in all ways. Faith works the word. Can we say that together? One more time. Faith is how the word works. Because faith is your consciousness of what the word says. Is that, is that not so? What God's word says. Hebrews 4.2. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you. Hebrews 4.2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not be mixed with faith in those who heard it. So God's faith in you catalyzes his word for you. God's faith in you catalyzes or quickens his word for you. In other words, God's word for you will not profit you until it is mixed or activated by his faith in you. Does that make sense? You know, you can believe God's word and it's not his will. You can hold on to God's word and say, I have victory in this and it's not God's will. In the area you're claiming victory, God is wanting you to go through it. So it's not the word of God that works for you. It's not even just the word of God released that works for you. It's the word of God released as driven by the faith of God for you. That works for you. So unfortunately, name it and claim it is a fraud. Yes, sir. No, no, no. Our work with God is not point and kill. No, sir. <laughs> no. No. No point and kill. First John 5 14 says, Whatever I ask the Father in my name, according to my will. According, according. It must be in accordance with his will. It's not a blanket statement. So no, it's not point and kill. Anyone you like, you just take. Father, I like this. Your word says. <laughs> what is the faith behind what the word says? You can't be going willy-nilly claiming every promise. And then saying, God, he answer you. What was the persuasion of God over the word of God you were claiming? Over the word of God you were claiming. You start to pray certain prayers. Father, fix this. Father, give me that. Your word says. So what? Out, right? They received God's word, not mixed with faith. So it didn't profit them. So you must be conscious of what God wills behind what he says. You must. You must. You must. His persuasion over your life now. Very important. Because it's how you will claim a word of God that, that will make God faithless. Yes. <laughs> Father! The wealth of the Gentiles yeah. shall come to me. The word says so. Father, 
He has been working for me. Your word says so. Good luck. No. No. Father, you promised you will scatter my enemies. He has scattered them. What does his faith define as your enemies? Not the people from your village. He loves them. He died for them too. He has no single evil. Look at me carefully. Look at me carefully. God has no single evil plan for anybody who hurt you. Who told you forgiveness is unconditional? God has no single sinister intention to anybody who did you wrong. You know why? Because God is fully avenged. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. He has repaid. His wrath is appeased. Oh, but they hurt me. They, 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 They hurt me. They ought to die. You hurt him. You didn't die. You are an enemy of God. He saved you. You should not kill your enemy. That's a God of double standards. That's a faithless God. So I'm sorry, sir, but that word is not going to work for you. But it is the word of God. So you see why a lot of us are very hurt and angry at God? Father, I applied your word. It didn't work. Your word is not working. It's working for Sister X. Nothing I seem to do, I apply it works for me. What is the faith of God behind the word of God that you are holding on to? Is it rightly divided? Do you understand it? Oh, pressure, I'm married this year. I know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? When actually the faith of God concerning marriage is if you can't handle it, leave it. That's the faith of God. That's the persuasion of God. That marriage is not profitable for all of you. So according to God's faith, a lot of you here should not marry. Because some of you here will deviate or make a shipwreck of your faith if you marry. For some of you, marrying is the undoing of your faith. Ask ask married people. Hurry, 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 hurry to marry. For what? That will do what to you? Because Africans have lied to you that you need to settle down. You have a job. You have a place to stay. You're doing okay, but you're not settled down because there's no woman or man. What is the faith of God over that? Oh, I will change change him. He will be born again. What is the faith of God over that? The faith of God over this is as the church is changing to Christ. So the woman is changing to the man. So if the man is not quality enough for you to be able to change to, stay away. Listen to me. Only a man can marry a woman for who she can become. A woman must marry a man for who he is. I didn't say what he is. I didn't say how much money he has. That's what he is. I didn't say how many degrees. That's what. I said a woman must marry a man for who is the essence of the man. You can't marry a man for who he hopes to be. But a man can marry a woman for who he hopes 
she would be. Because that is on him. To get her to conform to his image. The man does the work. The woman does the yielding. Christ does the work. The church does the yielding. Christ is the head. The church is conforming to him. That's the faith of God for marriage. If you can't deal, leave it. You don't want to say, God, allow me. Just give me any kind of man. My one and his zero will be ten. (laughs) So God's word must be undergirded by God's faith about the word. You can't take the word and want to squeeze out of the word what the word doesn't say. What the word doesn't mean. You can't do that. Is it clear? That's a faith life. Lastly, faith is how we win. Yeah, First John 5, 4. The spirit life. A life of victory. Yes, under faith life. Under living faith. Faith is how we win. First John 5, 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes or has overcome the world, our faith. Faith is how we win. Okay, number three. The spirit gift of faith. The spirit gift of faith. And this is the spirit endowment within and upon the believer for birthing supernatural manifestations. The spirit endowment within and upon the believer for birthing supernatural manifestations by which Christ is glorified. Spirit endowment within and upon the believer for birthing supernatural manifestations by which Christ is glorified. Did you get it? The spirit endowment within and upon the believer for birthing supernatural manifestations by which Christ is glorified. That's the spirit gift of faith. I can't exactly talk about the faith as a spirit gift without explaining or giving you a background. That's how I teach on gifts of the spirit. Because you see, the gifts of the spirit were manifest in the earth before the cross. It's important you understand that. The gifts of the spirit, endowments of the spirit, because the spirit was at work before the cross. Upon. Yeah, upon. And so people manifested spiritual or supernatural endowments even before the Holy Spirit came to live in us. This means that you will find pockets of manifestations of gifts of the Spirit in the Old Testament. Nobody did something supernatural for God in the Old Testament without the Holy Spirit. He's the active creative agent of God, remember? So this is how you see supernatural manifestations in the Old Testament. Samson did all he did by the Spirit. Deborah did all she did by the Spirit. Or Deborah, depending on your English teacher. Right? Jehu did all he did by the Spirit. Elijah outran a chariot by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that now dwells in you. Was operational in the Old Testament. Causing natural men... To do supernatural things. 
causing ordinary men to do extraordinary things. Make sense? So in the, the gift of the Spirit have always been there for all of human existence before the advent and indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer. Make sense? So that's how you see, think of all the gifts. Prophecy, we had prophets. Word of knowledge, we had people who operated in word of knowledge. Word of wisdom, Daniel had the spirit of wisdom. Are you seeing what I'm saying now? Yeah. So we have all of those in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God came upon men as occasion demanded for diverse supernatural happenings as God, as God willed. Against this backdrop, look at James 1.17. For every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, James 1.17, in whom there is no variation or variableness or shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Faith as a spirit gift is no exception. It's from above. As a gift. And it has been there before now. Faith as a spirit gift. I will define that. Faith as a spirit gift is no exception. Matthew 21.21, you say examples. Matthew 21.21, faith as a spirit gift, right? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12 first. 1 Corinthians 12, I think I need verse 9. Let's do that first. Start from verse 4. I need verse 9, but start from verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Each one. For to one, not all. The profit is of all. But the gifts are not to all. Go back to verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Make sense? The gifts are given for the profit of all, but the gifts are not given to all. So verse 8 starts to explain that to one, not all, to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit for the profit of all. To another, in, in other words, this other who has word of knowledge might not have word of wisdom. Since the word of wisdom might not have word of knowledge. Might not. I didn't say will not. Because it's through the spirit. I am not the spirit. So I cannot determine how many gifts are functioning in any believer. To another the word of knowledge through the same spirit. Nine. This is what I need. To another faith. This is as far as I'm going. To another faith. If this is saving faith, there's a problem. Because it will mean some people are not receiving this gift. Therefore, cannot be saved. It also means that even if we manage to be saved, not all of us can live the life of faith. Because only to some is it given. Saving faith. Living faith. Spirit gift faith. So this cannot be saving faith. 
It also cannot be living faith. It has to be the persuasion of God about how he can do crazy things. Does that make sense? The persuasion of God. That's why I said faith. the gift of faith is what? The Spirit's endowment within and upon the believer for birthing supernatural manifestations that glorify Christ. So this, if one person can have word of knowledge and not have word of wisdom, and somebody can have word of wisdom and not have word of knowledge, and somebody else can have faith and not have word of knowledge, or have knowledge and not have faith, it cannot be saving faith. Because first of all, we're talking about gifts in the church. In the church. People who are saved, who are living the life of God, called saints. So it cannot be saving faith, it cannot be living faith. It has to be a supernatural endowment. Does that make sense? Do you understand it? It's how somebody just gets up and says, um, like Papa Idawosa, when they were building, BIU building, you know, Miracle Center, and they said cement is running out in the container. And there was no money to buy cement anyway. And the man went, he said, he went to the container, put one foot inside, and he said, this cement will not finish until the building is completed. And they just kept going there like the cruise of oil and kept taking cement. And kept taking cement till that building finished. If I be a servant of God, any witch that steps on this land will die. They cancelled the meeting. World Council of Witches. That is supernatural endowment. That's not saving faith. You say you're a witch on national TV, NTA. You're a witch. Open your mouth now and say you're a witch. I kill you. You die now. Are you a witch? The representative of the witches said, I'm not a witch. (laughs) I'm a witch. Supernatural endowment for exploit. You can walk in it. By the Spirit. Because what is it? It is God's persuasion. No. You can walk in it. Endowment. Now that is the faith as a spirit endowment that Jesus references when the miraculous is in question. Because that one was at work in the world before the cross. It was how all the old heroes of the Old Testament did miracles by the Spirit. That was in, you didn't need to be born again to operate in that for God. Does that make sense? Matthew 21, 21. Thank you, Father. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I said to you, if you have faith, if you what? If you... And do not doubt. You will not only do what was done to the fig tree. You will say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. And it will be done. Not literally, of course. Because no mountain will move. Mm-mm. Why, do, why did we say no mountain will move? You see, that's why people keep praying nonsense prayers. Like I said, you are asking for something you say the word asks you to do. But you don't know the faith of the word. Yeah. A God who set mountains in place will not permit you to move it out of place. You're not co-creator with God. He set the mountains in place. He measured the waters in the palm of his hands. Oh, oh, Lord, you are saying, but you said I can move the mountain. No, 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 no. That's not the faith behind this scripture. Because he asked Job, who is he that determines that the river will not break its banks? It can only come this far. Now start praying, Father, I have faith. Let the river move. It will not move. 
Because God determined its banks. The scripture. It must be undergirded by the faith of God. The physical mountain will not move out. You say, Lord, prove your power. Shift Kilimanjaro. Over the border. I have faith. You're stupid. Because what you're doing is reordering or disordering God's creation. So no, you know what happened? So he wasn't referring to a literal mountain. He was saying the mountain in your life. What is difficult for you that is insurmountable apparently? You can move it. Leave my mountain alone. Because this my mountain will not move. And I'll be disappointed. God, I had faith. It didn't work. Whose faith? Is this helping you at all? Yes! So that faith there to move mountains is not saving faith. It's not living faith. It's the spirit endowment of faith. Do you understand that now? Luke 17. Luke 17, 6. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, mm-hmm, And you say to this mulberry tree, again, you will go to a mulberry tree and say, Come out, enter the river. Mulberry is looking at you, river is looking at you, nothing is moving. Just just hyperboles. Exaggerated examples of a reality. You follow me now? Hyperbole. Not literal. Just hyperbole. Exaggerate something so the meaning is not lost on you. But if you have faith, the point here is faith. As a spirit endowment to do the impossible. Not saving faith, not living faith. 1 Corinthians 12, 9, I've shown you that. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. You see again, spirit faith mentioned. Different from saving faith, different from living faith. 1 Corinthians 13 and 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy, are you here? And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. So see Paul again referencing faith. Apart from saving faith. Apart from living faith. But the kind of faith that could move mountains. So faith as a spiritual endowment to do the impossible. To do supernatural manifestations. And says if I have that, have not love, I'm nothing. The point is there is the faith that can move mountains. As a spirit endowment. You got it? That's the faith. As a spirit endowment that believers are encouraged to have. You know, he says, covet the best gifts. That brings us to where I close today. Mark eleven twenty two, where I touched on yesterday. Have faith. 22. Go back to 21. Mark eleven twenty one. Again, this fig tree matter, right? But this is, this is Mark's rendition. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, and if I were Jesus, I would have gone, because you know Peter is very, very dramatic. Look, the fig tree you cursed has withered away. My, oh my God. Wow. And if I were Jesus, I'd have answered, faith in God. Almost like, come off it. I mean, have faith in God, you. Have is the word echete from the word echo. I've explained what that is. 
Faith, pistis, from peitho. But you know, the original translation of this verse says, have the faith of God. Put it on. Young's literal translation, Bible in basic English. Have, take, possess, lay hold of the faith of God. Young's literal translation. And this is why I need you guys to get out your smartphones. I need the Doerem's Bible. So if you guys go to Bible Hub, I need the Doerem's Bible. I need the Aramic Bible. Even the Catholic Bible, the Catholic public Bible says, have the faith of God. Young's literal translation says, have faith of God. Not faith in God as though you were generating your faith. Wrong translation. So he was saying, take you, you, you want to do the impossible, you can, you can receive my faith. Channel my faith, you'll get the impossible. Have faith of God. Has anybody opened? Mark eleven twenty two. 22. Yes. I need Aramic Bible in plain English. You see additional translations. You see Berean Study Bible, BSB. Anybody have it? Yeah. And Jesus answered, say it to them, have faith of God. Worrell New Testament. In Bible Hub, you see it all there. What do you have? Berean Study Bible. Have faith from God. Berean Study Bible. Which other one? Do you have the Aramic Bible? Do you have the Catholic Bible in Bible Hub? You'd be amazed at what you find. I love studying. Catholic public domain version. And in response, Jesus said to them, have the faith of God. Even the Catholic Bible. How did we miss it? Yes. Aramic Bible in plain English. Yes. Yeshua answered and said to them, may the faith of God be in you. TPT, yes. We saw TPT earlier. Read it. Put up TPT. TPT. Because it's not something you can generate. Have faith of God. Not have faith in God though. Click the lexicon, go into it, you see it. Have faith of God. Of God is one word, theon. So was Jesus asking, was he requiring faith? Or was he transmitting faith? <laughs> was he asking for their faith? Or was he telling them, take my faith? Because, excuse me, who cursed the fig tree? Why did it wither? Because Jesus cursed it he said so if you want to do what Jesus did what do you need Jesus is faith not your own now so if Jesus wants you to do what he did what will he give you how he did it how did he do it by his faith so what is he giving to you his faith have the faith of God <laughs> only by the faith of God you can bring this to pass has anybody's consciousness shifted? Tell your neighbor, have the faith of God. Then tell the other neighbor, may the faith of God be in you. The faith of God. <laughs> the faith of God. By which you are saved, by which you live, by which you do the impossible, create the supernatural, 
and by which you gain maturity and grounding in the affairs of life. Has it been worth your time? Yeah, go ahead and give him praise. Give God praise. Well, that's it for today's teaching. We trust it has been worth your time. For more of these messages from our stables, kindly subscribe to our teaching podcast at www.thebasileacommission.podbean.com or via the Podbean app on your mobile device. For inquiries and further information, kindly send us an email to info at thebasileacommission.org or find us on social media with the handles at the truth simply put or at while the church. You can also send us an SMS, call us, or connect with us via WhatsApp on plus two three four seven zero triple eight one double eight six four. Finally, if you would like to give to support the work that we do, kindly follow the Patreon link in our podcast or contact our office for details. Thank you.